Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Bald Explorer Live. It's Thursday. We're getting through this week rather rapidly. I don't know where it's gone, but uh, gone it has. Here we are on Thursday, and um, it's, uh, it's a very muggy day here in Worthing. I don't know what it's like where you are. Obviously, I don't know because I'm not there, but I, I, uh, I can tell you that the lovely Julia went out today with myself, and um, I think the weather got the better of me, uh, and for some reason I don't know why I got into a bit of a bit of a fug there, and um, I wasn't the easiest person to work with. So I do apologise to the lovely Julia for my um, strange ways. It's strange times at the moment. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. I have been editing up what we've uh, videoed. Um, and I've only got about three minutes into final edit of it, but it's looking actually okay, which always surprises me when I'm, I get a bit stressed about the filming. Um, welcome along. It's nice to see Turbo Stream, Mike Stevens, the lovely Julia, Audrey Forbes, Ed Loud, and Kevin Whiteley. Good afternoon, he says from sunny Blackpool. Looking forward to my afternoon nap in approximately twenty minutes. All right, yes, I I have the ability to send people to sleep. That is my USP. Um, it's sunny, says TurboStream, with a warm westerly wind much better than yesterday. I can't actually remember what, what it was like yesterday. Um, too busy. Uh, focused on the now, you know? Focused on the now. Good afternoon to Cynthia Pate. Lovely to see you. And Lee Lawson. Let me have a gulp of my coffee. And thank you to the recent... Um, to the people recently buying... Um, mugs and various things. The the old Bald Explorer mug is uh, available on um, the website at www.baldexplorer.com. I've noticed there's been a couple of sales there. I don't actually get a huge amount of money from the sales, but it's lovely that people have a memento of the show and when they have troubles with me or issues with me, at least they can throw the cup against the wall and in utter disgust. Um Oh, very rainy yesterday. Oh, yes, it was, wasn't it? That's right. Yes, it didn't really go out. So we are continuing. We're on chapter six. This is a chapter called Cottages. And um, it's uh, nice and sunny and breezy in South Shropshire, says Audrey Forbes. Funny enough, um, I may well be up in Shropshire next week. Um, I've got to go and see a farmer in Wales and I another chap um chap called Mark has uh, some interesting stuff about some wild flowers so I may well be up there and I may be going to see floating our boat I'm not quite sure if that's going to come off um so I'm just sort of trying to organize things at the moment so I, I'm I'm not quite sure what my movements are next week but I will confirm up everything tomorrow Anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so we have um, farming practices whose only merit lay in their antiquity will be discarded, says the bank, the British bank advertisement. And Adolf Hitler said, I have to obli ob obliterate the world from independence upon its historic past, which we discussed at the end of yesterday. So let's see what, excuse me. Old the Wisdom of the Field, H.J. Massingham, has for us in today's um, show. Why was the older cottager so tough and hardy? The answer is 
silence, for no social historian has considered the significance of such records as... What has considered... What? Sorry, started already. The answer is silence, for no social historian has considered the significance of such records as exist. Oh, the records as as they exist. Right. Yet a very large proportion of our older cottagers live to a ripe old age after a lifetime of arduous labour, and in spite of such evils as fevers and insanitary conditions and rheumatism, from constant exposure. A friend, for instance, tells me of a Worcestershire dame of 91 who ran a small farm herself and at the same time brought up a family of 12 besides adopting five other children. She made every variety of home wines and was famed for her mushroom catsup whatever that might be, ordered to dress the meadow which provided her mushrooms with chemicals during the last war, she refused. But the field was forcibly fed. It has bred no mushrooms since. Isn't that interesting? Last year I heard of a Sussex woman, 109 years and five months, who had worked hard all her had worked hard all her long Old Testamentish life. On the day of her death, she went down to the chicken run to feed the fowls and then dropped dead. The men of Arnhelm died no better. So it's interesting, actually, that, that this woman says that... Um, or the, the story of this woman who was told to put chemicals on her field and then those ancient mushrooms never grew anymore. I don't know if anyone saw, I put a post on the Board Explorer uh, page, actually, that uh, um, Raymond Blanc is in the news saying that he reckons allergies, allergies? allergies and um, aversion to certain types of foods is a bit faddish. And he puts it down to the chemicals and the monoculture and the ex extensively farmed way our food is produced. Uh, I didn't tell him to say this. And he, um, he thinks that that's why people have got more allergies. They're eating all this processed food and they're not eating... It, it, it also says it's down to provenance, i.e. local food again. Um, it's fascinating how this keeps coming back. Audrey Forbes says ketchup. I don't know what you mean by ketchup, but there we are. I may append to these testimonies another from an estate agent who gave me what is perhaps the rarest of all exhibits in my collection of bygones, a pygmy flail with moulded handles and used with one hand for threshing out turnip or grass seeds. What a thousand pities! It is that we have not more of the real old farm labourers left today. Grand men, of most they were, and they were experts. Although I am an agent of this place, and I have been for years, there are few jobs on a farm that I cannot do from hand-shearing upwards and downwards. And it was those men you write off, that, sorry, it's those men you write of that taught me. 
It was not a soft school either. I well remember going for five successive years with one of the old sheep-shearing gangs. First year, catch and tie for them. Second year, catch, tie up the fleeces and open the bellies of the sheep. After that, I was promoted to the actual shearing, which I had to learn to do with both hands. We started daily at 4am until 8am and then on till noon until half an hour out. 1pm to 4.30 and then tea for the day. Sorry, and then tea for half an hour and then on to 8pm and then we were done for the day. In five years of my time as a pupil at one farm, I never had a half day off that I did not have to make up on my first day's work. How many of the youngsters of today would stand that pressure? Well, that's true. Another letter came from an old-time scytheman whose ground for writing was that he could not bear the countryside to be regarded merely as an annex to the big cities, nor nature to be reduced to a matter of figures and machines. That's interesting, isn't it? I love the way that he says that uh, um, the countryside is just an annex to the towns and cities. That's very sad, isn't it? When he was 11 and a carter's lad, he used to walk 10 miles every Sunday to see his parents and 10 miles back again to start milking. When he was 13, he milked, bedded down and tended seven cows without any help about 1880, he became a ploughman and carter on a farm near Leek, working from 6am to 9pm, as well as his normal work carrying coal from the pithead. At harvest, he also went into the cornfields with a group of 12 or 20 using the badgering hook. Uh, badgering? Badging. Badging hook. And into the hay with the scythe. When he was 23, he got married and took on a holding of 12 acres of his own, running it with his wife, as well as working as a labourer for a neighbouring farmer. In off times, he used to break four tonnes of stone a day at the, at the parish quarry. He cleaned dikes and preferred the rate of tuppence, the rude, of eight yards than that of eight shillings a week, because he could make more. Once a week, he used to walk six miles to the Leek Market, carrying a basket with 200 eggs in it on one arm, with 12 pounds of butter on the other. Such examples could be multiplied indefinitely by research into books, but the old memories... Oh, sorry, into books on the old memories of cottages. But I shall give you one more, because it concerns Harry Rogers of the last chapter. His father, Tommy, was a poacher in the picturesque tradition of the 19th century countryside. He drank nothing but beer in almost fabulous quantities, never wore an overcoat and lived hale to 82. They, as Edmund Blunden has written, were the men of the pith and through whom the cities never called. I believe that one of the reasons for the robust longevity of the old folk was the survival of pride and satisfaction in work after their nurse, personal ownership, had been taken from them by the enclosures. 
They, in their turn, depended upon the vitality of the small, more or less self-supporting, local community, which was also long a-dying. I quote a letter received from a Greek weaver of tapestries, carpets and brocades. It gives an oblique glimpse of the kind of independence, self-support and worthwhileness in work that drew cottage economy from Cobbett. My father was a fruit grower in Greece, where I was brought up, and this hereditary and upbringing have left their mark. I revisited Greece many times since, and it saddens me to see all the changes that have taken place, especially during the last 20 or 30 years. In my childhood, the peasants' arts, though declining, were not yet dead, and in my father's youth, every single item of food was produced on the parental farm, and all the textiles and the household requisites, such as soap, candles, etc., were made in the home. There were no shops in the town, only workshops, and articles like furniture, pottery, hardware and utensils of all kinds were ordered and brought on the site when they were made. Iterian vendors supplemented or supplied the needs of the smaller householders. A primitive way of life? One at any rate highly favourable to the health and happiness of the community. This introduces the second and allied reason for the vigour of the cottager against bad pay, bad drainage and overwork. It was the quality of the food eaten. I turn again to my correspondent, the Scytheman, who lived mainly on oatmeal cakes shaped like gramophone records. Every cottage has its own bake stone or bake oven, for baking the oatmeal, which was eaten with homemade butter or cheese. Almost the only meat was home-snared rabbit or pork and cured hams from the cottager's pig. There were wines from the home hedges, trout and pike from the farm fish pond and a restricted amount of orchard and cottage garden fruit. Then comes what may have been the most important item of all. Contractors used to collect night soil from the towns and sell it to the farmers for their land. Food was thus organically grown. But the methods of preparing it must also be taken into account. Another letter I received from a Mrs Peggy Goodman, who farms in Wales, is an authority on milking oatmeal. She wrote in high praise of the traditional Welsh folk cookery as tested not only by its palability but by the number of elderly people found in every village who profited by it. Their sight, hearing and digestion were quite unimpaired by age as was their physical and mental vitality. One of them was a Welshman who lived on the Welsh oatmeal in hot water from the age of 65 onwards one large bowlful every day. He died at a hundred and four. But it was not the same story with these younger people who had replaced the oatmeal with milk, butter and potatoes of these veterans' childhood with white bread, 
Oh, sorry, yes, I see. But it was not the same with the story with the younger people who, who had replaced the oatmeal, the butter and milk and potatoes of the veteran's childhood with white bread, margarine and tea. It is based on his own observations on these benefits of physical health and psychological sanity derived from it. That's quite interesting, isn't it? So much for the individual cottager between his time and uh, between his time and ours. But Cobbett's appraisal of the past was based on his cottagers having formed self-supporting communities. The enclosures, he said, had produced effects so injurious that those responsible for them might begin to suspect that the dark people were not so very foolish when they had so many common fields and when almost every man had a family, had also a bit of land, either large or small. A letter to me from the local historian Dr W. G. Hoskins describes the Leicestershire village of Wigston, Magna, as an example of a free and self-governing cottager community. It was composed mainly of peasant proprietors, proprietors, without a resident lord since doomsday, or even earlier. They made their own bylaws for village and field, managed their own church and its finances, ran their own guild, and in short, did everything for themselves and were absolutely independent, an absolutely independent community. Their mode of life, he added, was a civilization in the best sense of the word. Had Cobbett been alive today, he would still have found many smallholders, but only a minor minority, practising subsistence husbandry, and that incompletely. He would have found only one village, Laxton. Now, Laxton is interesting. Laxton in Nottinghamshire, where the system of common fields survived in conjunction with family holdings. Um, Laxton in Nottinghamshire, somebody sent me a link to that recently and they still practice, somewhat of a novelty I think, and sightseers come to see it, that the open field system. He would have become aware of a strong movement in high places for the dispossession of the smallholder as uneconomic and the absorption, absorption of his plots in large-scale economic units, a final instalment of the enclosures. Yes, that's true. So this monoculture, this large farm, these great big sways where they've dug up the hedgerows and got these enormous fields, 20, 30 acres big, that is, as it just says there, the final instalment of the enclosures. A letter from a smallholder who cultivates or cultivated 17 acres on the southern slopes of Dartmoor explains the consequences of the WAC not quite sure what that is. Is that the uh, War Agricultural Commission? Insisting on him becoming a part-time worker off his holding and throws an oblique light on the movement. I was told the WAC... Uh, I couldn't do more than I was doing here, but they were determined that this small subsistence farm must go... And I must become an insured worker. They said we produce nothing. We feed eight people almost entirely, sell several dozen eggs a week, several tons of potatoes each year, hundreds of cabbage, 
cabbages and broccoli, sacks of sprouts, one or two yearlings, about six pigs for bacon, purchased at a loss. This year we had finally to say goodbye to the tractor and we do all our own work in every respect. This year too we hope for the first satisfactory profit, £100 in kind and £125 in cash, less £25 expenses. This country, I feel, is hopeless from our point of view. All we can hope is to keep our family together until we can get out. They made it clear that our way of life must go. As the WAC told me, you must move with the times or get out. I turned to a larger farmer of a much richer piece of land. This farmer moves with the times so heartily that returning nothing, he has taken since the war five white straw crops in succession. Presumably because he is so well abreast of the times, the WAC has left him indulgently alone. In what direction are the times actually moving? Starvation looks Europe in the face, and there are no further areas of virgin soil in the world to be exploited for cheap food. That's an interesting comment there, that uh, there are no f further areas of virgin soil in the world to be exploited for cheap food, apart from, of course, the forests, like the Amazon forests, which they have been obliterating for virgin soil. Cobbett, in his rural ride through the 20th century, would have come into contact with one community of smallholders at once numerous, vigorous and prosperous. How has such a community contrived to survive and in what ways does it conform to, in what way fail to conform to, the principles laid down in cottage economy? Does it fulfil the first mission of the smallholder to provide a good living for his family from his own production and sell his surplus, preferably to the neighbours, as provisions for a rainy day? Or, like the farmer above, does it sell everything off the holding in exchange for cash? Are the holdings mixed? Do the wives bake and cure bacon and pursue the domestic crafts? Have they, by this wholesomeness of living, achieved something like a local and cooperative democracy like that of Wigston? If so, how can it maintain itself in the face of an economic system that aggravates the evils Cobbett saw in his earlier phases? The example comes from the Vale of Evesham, and the answer to these questions is mixed. But one answer is un equivocal. The smallholders of the Vale, living side by side with market growers of bigger acres, are not depressed by them, owe their flourishing condition not to the soil, as is erroneously supposed, but to a very ancient system of land tenure, the Evesham custom. It was created not by the enlightenment of squire or lord of the manor, but the old commoners themselves. The present system of tenancy is directly founded upon it. My knowledge of both the history of the Evesham smallholders and their present life and economy is derived from my own explorations of the region 
in the 1930s and from my old friend Mr C.H. Gardiner, clerk to the district council. Good cultivation in the Evesham region goes back as far as 700 AD when the monks of Evesham established themselves not only market gardening and fruit growing but the smallholder. All the records of the borough reveal that the small master thrived there for more than a thousand years under the open system. Then came the enclosures and down he went. But when farms became vacant in the Depression after 1874, the landlords, remembering the consequences of the past, cut them up and let them to the labourers. Opportunity was given of cultivating their new farms according to the councils of cottage economy. They took it and became entirely self-subsistent. They, only used, they used only family labour and lived on what they produced. They were heartened in this epic struggle by two signal advantages. One was the frequent presence of Joseph Arch in the neighbourhood with his programme of small independent mastership. The other was the survival of the Evesham custom of their forefathers. This gave the small man two securities and incentives. One was a very unusually generous valuation of tenant right which enabled him to profit by intensive cultivation of and improvements to his land. The other was the power of nominating a new tenant to his landlord who, if satisfactory, was bound to be accepted. This meant that notices to quit were and are rare the equally unusual enlightenment of the County Council and the Small Holdings and Allotments Act of 1908 had the effect of ratifying and extending the encouragements of the custom. So that's a uh, that's, um, fascinating sequence, isn't it? Yet in, the borough, yet in the borough, the average holding per man is only seven and a half acres and the average peasants rarely cultivate more than 20 to 40 acres. There are few landless and even the casual labourers tills a small pot, plot. The wife shares her husband's self-respect and independence herself by earning on the land. House pride and so house pride and so the housewifey crafts like jam making Wine and cider making and other domestic arts are normal. I guess we would see that as a little bit sexist, but hey-ho. The social relations between master and workman retain the old friendliness and familiarity there. Reciprocal services and cooperation are a common feature of the local life. In the spring of this year, 1945 for instance, 30 of these smallholders, including a soldier on leave and a boy to hand... And a boy to hand and a boy to hand round tots of cider, turned up to put the to put to rights the asparagus bed of one of their number who was ill. There was no committee, no overseer, and the spontaneity of the neighbourly act was taken for granted in all the villages about. Fifty years ago, ten villages combined to have a piped water supply installed and house horses are jointly owned today as oxen's were in the pre-enclosure village. 
Every inch of land is utilised, the marshy bits being planted with withies for tying the abundant produce, while the farming population of the Vale has declined, the small holding one has doubled itself in a century and the parish councils are active. Before local milling of whole grain flour was made illegal by the government, acting thus as agent of the milling combine, the Vale's men grew wheat for local milling. Their women baked the flour in their own ovens and set aside the bran for the cottage pie. The passages on bread and pig-keeping in cottage economy might have been texts on the homestead's wall. The, the traditional background of this busy and enterprising community is thus manifest. A particular witness in point is the survival of the strip system of the open fields whereby the holdings of a villager were scattered over the whole parish, some on the good ground, some on the poor for for fairness's sake this practice set the advocates of enclosure in full cry what could be more time-wasting and uneconomic than for a peasant holder to be plodding to and fro with his carts and implements between one of his strips and another perhaps half a mile away why then do the virile smallholders of Avesham Vale retain the antiquated principle of the scattered strip for three very good reasons. It enables them to live in their own villages instead of on their holdings, which they could easily reach by bicycle. Thus the village community remains compacted. It makes practical the growing of particular crops in the different areas best suited to them and each holder to order his crop varieties into a pattern. Thirdly, he can increase or reduce his various strips as needed or convenience arises. But the real answer to this, why, how the system works extremely well is as doubtless as it did in the open fields community or it would not have survived for a thousand years. All who know the small holding of the Vale it testify to their extraordinary productiveness. Yet the Vale soil, though good, is not exceptional, being low-lying it's liable to flooding from the Avon and to late May frosts. Part of it is clay land, which requires the continuous working that only the peasant or his descendants gives to it, and part of the much lighter river terrace soils were liable to be affected by drought. Mr Gardner told me that a small holder showing a party round remarked, The soil's got nothing to do with it. You could dump us anywhere in England, in, and in two years we would have adjusted ourselves to the local soils and other conditions and we would be on our feet. A. H. Savory, I think it's Savory, in Grain and Chaff from an English Manor, written in 1885, wrote of the Evesham labourers struggling to become landholders, these men, by their unceasing labour and self-denial, were just beginning to turn the corner. They had cleared the land, ameliorated its mechanical condition, 
by an application of soot and deep digging with their beloved forks, and the well-merited return was coming increasingly year by year. It is vital, therefore, to observe how these men of the spade and fork have coped with modern machinery. In my experience, the craftsmen and the husbandmen not only do not know how to cope with it without forfeiting the personal skill of and interest in their work, but are the only existing types who can. The Valesmen use a small motor cultivator, which is in fact nothing more than a power-driven beast plough. I have one of these in my collection of agricultural bygones. At a glance, it reveals its very bulkiness and unwieldiness as a measure of the high skill it once extracted. Now mechanical power has circumvented the primitiveness of the implement without sacrificing the aptitude of its use. Men of the Vale still take to it, to the local black still take it to the local blacksmith for adjustments and attachments to fall in with its particular needs. Man is still the master. This is of ex this is of supreme importance to those who desire to re remain and continue as man. Yet for years before the war, the busybodies were at the Valesman. They were. And uneconomic, they were not scientific and technical enough. While Sir Daniel Hall proposed hitching them on a compulsory to become producing units of large-scale enterprise, Mr. Gardner is anxious about their future. To save them from commercial and totalitarian intentions, he exhorts these traditional peasants to take a dose of technical education and scientific research. Being what they are, they could be trusted to do so without fear of an overdose, just as they can be trusted with. Uh, being what they are, they can be trusted to do so without fear of an overdose, just as they can be trusted with machinery. One of them, visiting a soil analyst at the Long Aston Research Station, mentioned that scientific research was useless unless subordinate. To practical experience, just as automatic machinery is an incumbus and less subordinate to the hand skill, it is for what they are, not for what they do, that they are imperiled. They produce abundantly without the aid of bulldozers and multiple ploughs, but it is because they are small. But it, it yeah, but it is because they are small rural peasants. That they are out of favour, and that's the end of that little section there. I think I've knocked my microphone right up. Sorry if that was very loud and distorted. I've knocked the um, knocked the fader up with my book. I beg your pardon. I got rather uh, carried away into that because I could feel a. I didn't sleep well. I slept quite well, but I didn't get as much sleep as I wanted to, and I could feel a wave of um, sleepiness coming over me, which is why I just ploughed on with it. Uh, let's have a look at some of the comments. Uh, let's have a bit of water. Um, Graham Cass says, never come across a supermarket filled with cycle bay. Uh, Michael White says, walking is the best form of exercise. Edward Moulding says, good afternoon. Kevy says, not if you've got a dodgy knee, it isn't. 
Um, I would like to live in a place like this village, says Cynthia Pate, yes. Is Laxton where the apples come from? I dare say they must get apples in Laxton, I don't know. Uh, the enclosures sent a lot of people to the US, says Cynthia Pate. Is that true? Graham Cass, land that supports us is shrinking while demand grows. And there we are, never a true word. It's amazing that these topics are still relevant today. It is satisfying to be more self-sufficient and depend on your neighbours, says Cynthia. And Andrew Norris says... The description of a community is just how life in my village in Croatia was within living memory. And and I'd love to know why it isn't any longer, Andrew. Um, seeing as, you know, you where you are in Croatia are closer to that memory than we are in Britain, where since the 50s and onwards we've been slowly... Um, pulling our communities apart by taking people off the land and yes there are communities within the city of course and towns but it's a somewhat different thing Linda Kane says uh, sorry late the builder actually turned up when he said he would for a change oh right what have you what are you having done Linda right we will do a little bit more just this last section I think which is only a couple of pages and then we will pause yet their marketing has become contrary to that of a peasant economy for they have perfected an elaborate system of exporting their product their markets are distant as well as at hand and the urban merchant has more dealings with them than the local distributor Alternatively, a commission agent sells their produce for them and, and I'm speaking of the days before control of prices, gets what he can for it. These agents pivoted on the central markets, including Covent Garden, usually appoint a local representative and sometime passes before the growers even know what prices have been attained for their fruit and vegetables. Yet so strong is the cohesion of this peasant community that mutual confidence between the agent and the smallholder is the rule. Even so, they could hardly have survived the modern system of profitable export at the expense of self-sufficiency without some measure of self-protection. This they have built up to the east of Evesham by the cooperative society known as Littleton and Badsea Growers, founded in 1909 with the capital of £154. The society is the direct outcome of the Valesman's dependence upon our historic past. Which, if you remember at the beginning of the chapter... Where is it? It wasn't that far back. We haven't read that much, surely. Was uh, Hitler saying, I want to liberate the world from dependence upon its historic past. It springs from the ages-old and ingrained habits of cooperation in the village community of the open field. Both its personal and its activities show it. 
the original members were mostly ex-farm labourers who had climbed to mastership. It closely represents the interests of the smallholder by undertaking his purchasing and marketing affairs. It supplies him with the equipment he needs, relieves him of business and clerical data, and runs an advisory and intelligent service on the most remarkable crops. Oh, sorry, on the most marketable crops. It even, to some extent, stabilises prices by large advanced contracts with the big buyers and processors. It cultivates land of its own and arranges trial vegetable plots. Free of the methods of coercion and regimentation proposed by Sir Daniel Hall, the members are under no obligation to sell any of their produce to it. The society is, in short, a kind of buffer state between the smallholders and the market. Consider to what he was and is exposed in the predatory open market. Some figures given by Mr Hugh Quigley in 1944 reveal how the producer, especially the small one, is penalised. In the years between the wars, the price gap between producer and consumer for every pound of fruit was tuppence or threepence. In 1944, the distributor's margin in all the items of soft fruit was only a trifle lower than the prices paid to the producer. For a pound of loganberries, for instance, the grower received sevenpence and the middleman six and a half pence, the consumer paying one shilling and one and a half pence. Since these prices were fixed by the Ministry of Food, it is clear that the go-between is fattened at the expense both of the consumer and the grower. In many classes of produce, a hundred percent margin between the growers and the retailer's prices compels the former to sell at or below the cost of production, especially if he be a small one without reserves. Well, that just sounds like he's dealing with supermarkets, doesn't it? The moment the small valesman risked himself in this export market, he became subject, subject to the fluctuation of prices which, between 1921 and 1932, brought wheat down from 21 shillings and tuppence to 5 shillings and 5 pence per hundredweight, barley from 25 shillings and tuppence to 8 shillings and 10 pence per hundredweight, oats from 19 shillings and 10 pence to 6 shillings and 6 pence per hundredweight. He came into contact with a system whereby one villager sells a lettuce to another via Covent Garden and plum jam made at Frochester in the South Cotswolds is sold in order is sold by order to a firm in Pershaw, the plum centre of Worcester. Isn't that well there you go. I mean that is that is that's exactly what is still going on and I love the way he's written that here. Um, a system by whereby one villager sells a lettuce to another villager via Covent Garden. And that's, you know, take out Covent Garden and put in supermarket. And that's basically what is going on. Instead of just nipping across and buying it direct, one villager is growing something and is selling it to another villager 
through the middleman who's taking uh, almost 100% profit by the looks of things here. Newcastle produces coal, so carry it there. By this canon of uh, profitable export, the self-sufficiency upon whose rock the small holdings of the Vale were founded becomes economic defeatism. The staple of their production is fruit and vegetables, and now, to a lesser degree, dairy products. Into what a cosmic gladiatorial show of competition were they caught when they stepped into the arena for the markets for the protected foods? Before the Great Wars began, one London firm was receiving 20,000 cases of eggs per week from Austria, Russia, Romania and Galicia. In one year, we got from Russia 400... Sorry, in, from one year, we got from Russia 640 millions of eggs. From Italy, 315. And from Denmark, 422 million eggs. In the same year, Denmark exported us 168 million pounds of butter so that in order to feed himself with it, she had to import it from Russia. The next year, France exported to us 2,256 tonnes of fresh vegetables, 1,000 tonnes per day of potatoes from St. Malo alone, and from one region, 2,000 packets of parsley. Even the Argentine joined in by exporting fruit and rabbits to us, whose fruit rotted on the trees and pastures, were rabbit-sick. Between 1920 and 1939, two cargo and two passenger boats plying between Boulogne and Folkestone discharged in one season 2,500 packets of fresh foods per hour. The cream of this progressive economy appears in another item from St. Malo. In one year, this port sent us over 773 tonnes of blackberries. And while the foreign bees buzzed about their native flowers to satisfy this gigantic system of sponging, the hedges met across our fields, our gate, so the hedges met across our fields. Oh, the hedges grew right across the fields. I see what he's saying. Our gates fell off their hinges. Our producers were in pawn to the banks and our countryside in rags. So he's saying that there we were with this government system producing uh, in a dire state where our farms were desperate to grow stuff. And yet we were just importing it from all around the world because... It was supposedly cheaper and or, I guess, easier. I don't know. It is one of the wonders of unwritten history that the small veilsman could possibly stand up to such a hurricane of price-cutting and underselling. How did they? And this is, so this is this little clique of people that managed to get by, whereas everybody else didn't. By retiring when times were at their worst within their inner citadel, the fortress of the family subsistent holding. In other words, they fell back upon the principles of livelihood as advocated in cottage economy, the victory of their grandfathers, the strength of their fathers, and their own refuge from the financial furries of economic warfare. 
Being still peasants by blood and in the size of their holdings, they reverted to peasants by practice. It's because in their modern enterprises they kept the road back from falling into disrepair that they survived a period which has proved to be an ice age for the small independent man. So what I take from that is that because they were in the middle of nowhere in their little bubble, they could survive by growing their own stuff for themselves and their locality whilst the rest of the network had now become reliant on overseas production. But to compete in the Covent Garden markets, and I guess now when we say Covent Garden, we're meaning supermarkets. This seems to be the system of the day, isn't it? But to compete in the Covent Garden markets entailed specialised cash cropping, while mass-producing mass these crops turned over their holdings to factory methods. So complex and delicately poised are the relations between crop and stock on the self-supporting farm, however small, that to tamper with a part of it is to dislocate the balance of the whole. Once they became dependent on the markets instead of themselves, their whole economy was threatened, and when the present war came, they could not help themselves. Most of their stock did go, just as the stock from the old commoners went when the co commons were enclosed. They have had to export more th than their surpluses, and the cash they received in exchange was no return to the land. The holdings of the Land Settled Association have been called horticultural suburbs. The long lines of council houses stringing village to village in the Vale of Evesham are the reflection of an inward change from a rural towards an urban mentality. The spirit of the place is departing and it was the impact of place upon person that created the Evesham custom. An old Spanish proverb runs, Take what you will, said God, but pay for it. This is not to imply that the Valesmen have gained the world by the aid of, but in the end, the loss of their traditional integrity. They still provide their families with all the vegetables they need, and they have a healthy taste for plenty. There are few who do not grow a patch of potatoes which are sorry there are few who do not grow a patch of potatoes which are not for sale again they retain the prue of misshapen buds of asparagus for home consumption they are too small or slender for trying into for tying into good class bundles for export and from the point of view of flavor many of the growers prefer this prue to the full-sized buds. The preparations at the pot for a Sunday dinner retain something of the solemnity of the rite, still more so if the meat is ho a home-cured pig, and the pig has by no means become a bygone little like the pot of corn. Yet a timeless mixed substance husbandry cannot be accommodated to the economies of the dealer and the broker, nor satisfy the insatiable demands of industrialism without paying for it. Something has to go. What go as always are the what go 
as always are the intangibles which have been the great reward of such husbandry, quality and fertility. It is reward, but it is also its foundations. When Lewis had a flourishing local market, it issued a report in 1925 on the value of a cheap local supply of fresh vegetables and fruit. A letter I received from a railway solicitor may be placed beside it. The food in the canteen is the worst I have ever seen anywhere, and all the peas come out of tins, and all the soup is made of bisto. Everyone from the chief engineer of the railway downwards complains of the food, but deficiencies are put down to the restricted imports and wartime conditions. When I suggest that enough food could be produced locally, I am regarded with wild incredulity. Food is produced by the hotels and catering departments, who must purchase it from London through the usual channels. By interlocking their traditional economy with this ephemeral, ephemeral one, the smallholders of the Vale inevitably forfeit the quality which, with independence and security from destitution, prompted cottage economy. A constant supply of fresh food is the a constant supply of fresh foods is the condition of health local marketing the condition of that local marketing the condition of that supply and both the conditions of quality if the valesman himself escapes the consequences of breaking those conditions by feeding his family on what he produces it is evident that the consumer does not so um, some of that is quite um, involved and detailed, but uh, from what I glean really from that, he's talking about these veil, veilsmen in the Vale of Evesham, who it seems from what I interpreted from that, and you tell me if you've got the same, is that they many of them hung on to their mixed farms and their, their own home produce um, and in their very small farms, even though around them were told that they needed to industrialise and mechanise, they couldn't compete. But so where they lost out in money, they still were able to grow and feed themselves. But the rest of the country who were uh, enticed to go into this big mechanised thing were bringing food that is highly produced. And as the, uh, the railway solicitor bloke said, everything comes out of tins and everything is, you know, dumbed down. And you can't help feeling that this is right at the very beginning and, and was a warning cry to what has subsequently happened. Um, I am on, I'm, I'm pretty confident now that I've got secured an interview with a chap called Patrick Holden. You can look him up on YouTube and on the internet. Patrick Holden, who is a farmer who believes in mixed farming um, and he thinks that uh, we need to go to the supermarkets and demand that we have local food uh, and that's the only way we'll change the system is making the supermarkets the, the, the buyers of food and the purveyors um, who will place it out for us and have the power if we as consumers en masse make the demand that we won't have the mass-produced highly intensive stuff and um, I think his name's Guy Watson from River Riverford Foods. I've been watching a lot of him on uh, YouTube. He has rants. If you look for Guy's rants on YouTube, um, he is the head 
where he owns, or well, it's now owned by the employees, Riverford. And his his rants are very interesting because he talks about all the stuff that I've been reading, not only in this book, but in other books that I've been talking about. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's it's... I'm not just making this up because I've read a couple of books. There are people out there who intently intensely feel that the food is wrong and as i said before raymond raymond blanc or whatever his name is the french is he french greek whatever chef the michelin award-winning chef who claims that people with allergies get more people something like 65 percent of people have food allergies now and he puts this down to highly um mechanized um the the monoculture the the uh, the lack of minerals and nutrients again i keep getting this now echoed at me but not by you know little youtube channels who are just moaning about it like i am but actual people in the industry who are saying exactly the same that our food that is dished up in the supermarkets contains nothing of value and that we need to be looking at old uh, ways of farming and putting the nutrients back in naturally. But I know people will say, oh, you're just reading books and you're just doing that, you don't know nothing. So um, that's why I'm trying to go out and interview. I want to see if I can get this guy Watson on camera. He's down in De Devon. I'm going to email him to see if I can get an interview with him as well um, and try and get some of these high-profile high people on camera um, to to help get this message out. and try and work out what the answer is because i think we we've got to get more farmers small mixed farming back supplying local because there's just not enough of them um let's just have a quick look at the comments before i go thank you very much for listening uh linda kane says um having had the work i done a great expense six years ago oh this is what you're having done um, I'm not quite sure what it was actually because I missed that. I started reading again. So people are talking about that. Think cancelled in COVID times. During this pandemic, it seems that governments have done little to preserve the food chains. Uh, well, I was rather hoping that, that actually during the uh, lockdown that people were going to be uh, visiting their local or demanding from local farms that they supply them directly rather than through supermarkets where people would have to um, bathe in Covid where they would meet more people because that seemed to be the only place where you were going to meet people because everyone was allowed to go to shops um, he don't like western influence was one excuse um, hello Richard and everyone central Florida here hello Larry uh, happy birthday to Clint Brooke 48 today happy birthday to you sir um, Ed Loud says fascinating stuff population was a lot smaller then yes that's often been a thing to say that the population was smaller and therefore we need this this is the story as i understand it that we are being told that we can't feed everybody and so this is why we have these um huge um prairies of monoculture and that's the only way to do it i don't believe that and I, the books that I've read, and yes, I know they're books that I have read because I am not an expert, so therefore I'm reading around the subject. But other people, such as Colin Trudge, have, have said, well, you know, uh, that's not correct. Because if you, and he's done the sums and he pre presents them in a book, Social We Reach. 
and says even if we what is the what is the population at the moment six billion he says even if we had 10 billion we still have enough um, space and potential to be able to feed ourselves in a much smaller way and actually will be a lot less wastage a lot of the food is wasted in this big big mechanized way so it's yes there are more people um, but we've got to get more people back on the land and have that connection. That's that's his point. Um, it's good to spread the word, says Lee Lawson. And, and what is wrong? Exactly. What is wrong with spreading the word and making people just think about the subject? Are you really wanting to eat stuff which is possibly, possibly giving you food allergies, possibly ending up with diabetes because you don't have the right uh, nutrients and um minerals in your thing possibly leading to other health conditions i mean i'm not saying it does a hundred percent because i'm no expert but what i'm saying is it's good to think about it isn't it instead of just going oh but we can't do anything so therefore we won't you know golly imagine that in 1940 when uh, the nazis were across the channel trying to get to us uh, Patrick Holden is the founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust. Exactly. I'm seeing him on Tuesday, the 25th of, well, next Tuesday. So I'm going to his farm in Wales um, to interview him. And that's going to be a fascinating. I've been in communication with him. Uh, it's impossible to produce local food with a population of 66 million and rising, says Kemp. Well, how do you know? Who, where do you get that basis from? Who says it's impossible? Where's the evidence? How do you know that? I mean, it's all very well saying that, but how do you know? Do you know? Are you a farmer? Have you tried it? I mean, you know, I'm not having a go at you particularly because it's very easy to say, oh, well, we've got 66 million people, so therefore we can't. But how do we know that? Has it been tried? Have we tried it? Um, thanks, Richard. Thought-provoking as ever. If I can be thought-provoking, uh, or, or annoying, I do my best. Uh, TurboStream says, my allotment patch is providing too much food for one. I am happily giving it away to, other, to others to save wasting it. So isn't that an indication that we might be able to do it? You know, greening up, like we made a video the other day of greening a garage roof. Well, that's for wild flowers and things, but it could be for vegetables. It could, you know, it could pr provide some of your intake i don't know that it's impossible and it was certainly a lot more healthy and i think healthy is more important but you know it's five o'clock anyway so thank you very much for tuning in i will be back on friday uh tomorrow there's this chance that well i mean i've got to go to wales on tuesday so i may well be away for a couple of days I will confirm up tomorrow. I'm confirming up all my um, things. I'm trying to sort of combine them all together. But um, so I may be away for a couple of days. So we may not have anything for a couple. Of, I don't know. But um, there we go. Um, look after yourselves. And thank you very much for watching. Um, it's fascinating to read something from 80 years ago or 75 years ago, or whatever it is. And... Um, to, 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 to gauge how relevant it is today. Look after yourselves. I will see you tomorrow. Take care. Have a good afternoon or early evening, whatever it is. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.